It's a great day to be together in the name of our Lord Jesus. If you'll open your Bible to Exodus chapter 1. When you get there, I'll explain why that we're starting there. Exodus chapter 1. In the passage that Matt read to us this morning, there's a backstory to it. In order to understand the significance of the passage itself, we have to go to the backstory and begin there so that we can understand why the quote from Psalm 95, which was a recounting of some events of the Exodus, especially chapters 16 and 17, we're going to have to understand why this is significant to us. So we need the backstory. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 1. And let's read, starting in verse 8, looking together at the text. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Wow. Let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And in the event of war, they also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us. And depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pitham and Ramses. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. And the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field and their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of who was named Shifra and the other whose name was Pua. And he said, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth, you see them upon the birth stool. If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and he said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. In other words, that time in the fields make them really tough. And it came about that the midwives feared God, and he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. This is the bondage that Israel was delivered from in the Exodus. This bondage was beyond our capacity to even measure. If you could even for a moment think about your child being thrown into the Red River after you gave birth at Rapides. They just took the baby out the back door and heaved him into the river. The afflictions that they were in were beyond our capacity to even imagine. And so these pains became so powerfully invasive in every aspect of their lives that they began to falter under the load and they began to cry out to God and say, 
deliver us, deliver us. And the Bible says that that's exactly what God did. He came down, He saw, and He decided to deliver them. He sent Moses to do that, to bring about that deliverance. And you know, here they are in bondage, taskmasters, hard labor, bitter lives, babies being cast. God sends Moses. Moses comes, demands of Pharaoh, says... Let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. God says, I'll show you. And over ten plagues that are also beyond our capacity to understand, he finalizes with the plague of the death of the firstborn. And we have the Passover event where the Israelites' homes are protected from the plague of the death of the firstborn. The death angel swoops down, falls upon the homes of Egypt. And every door that is painted with the blood of a lamb is covered. And the death angel literally passes over. Pharaoh finally says, you can go. They leave. They cross through the Red Sea. The Red Sea splits open. They come through. They get to the other side. Pharaoh's army charges after them. The water washes back over them and drowns them in a mighty wash of death. And the people of Israel are over on the other side, having seen the signs, having seen the salvation, having seen the power, having seen the miracles. All of this. And they get to the land and we get to chapter 16. So let's go there for just a moment. Because chapter 16 begins to show the unraveling of the people and the revealing of where their hearts were. Now there's a very important thing I want to say now, and I'm, I'm going to say it maybe a couple of times or maybe a hundred times. I don't know how I'll communicate it, but here's something that's important to understanding this text in the book of Exodus and the text we're going to study in the book of Hebrews. Difficulties do not create the absence of faith. Difficulties reveal the absence of faith. This is the heart of the message in Exodus and in the book of Hebrews. Difficulties do not create an absence of faith. Difficulties reveal an absence of faith. I've got a friend who works at a nuclear facility where they produce power. And what he has to do is use a strange kind of x-ray machine. This x-ray machine is very unique because it x-rays concrete. And every so often, I don't know how many times a year, they take this special machine and they go through the entire plant and all the concrete that surrounds the plant, all the concrete that the plant is founded on, all the concrete that, that uh, builds the barriers in case of meltdown, all that stuff. And they go in and they use this x-ray and that x-ray goes through and shows them any cracks in the concrete even those that are not visible to our unaided eyes. Now, that x-ray does not cause the cracks in the concrete. It reveals them. God x-rays our hearts with difficulties, not causing the absence of faith, but revealing it. 
So here the difficulty comes in the book of Exodus. You get to chapter 16. The people are in the desert, million or more strong, and they have no food and no water. And they begin to grumble. Now, we live in America where grumbling seems to be a right. God doesn't think it that way. God has an attitude about grumbling that's very serious. And I'm going to share how serious that is in a little bit. These people begin to grumble. And having been delivered from their bondage, having been delivered from all of these things, the Lord provides manna, the Lord provides water, He miraculously does these things. We get to chapter 16 when God is about to make this provision that they're going to live off of after miraculously making water sweet for them. Come to chapter 16 and I want you to look at verse 2. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out here into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now there is something here that is tremendously significant. Here's what they're saying. We would rather have died under the judgment of God with a full belly than have been saved from His judgment and have to trust Him by faith. That's the core of this statement. We would rather die and go to hell with a full stomach than be delivered from our bondage and have to live in difficulty by This is a powerful statement. And it is the reason God got mad. It is the reason that God actually stated something over these people. God swore. And when God starts swearing, you better get your highlighter. Because He does not mess around when He makes an oath. I meet people all the time and they say, I swear to God, that's my first indication that I probably ought not believe them. Because their need to make an oath makes me go, I'm a little worried about this. When God swears an oath, highlight it. God swore over these people. He said, they're not going in to my rest. They'll die in their sin. This was mega, 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 mega. This is giga serious. Okay. It's huge. Because here, these people thirst, they grumble, they hunger, they grumble, and they begin to falsely accuse God of having a bad intent for them when He has delivered them from their bondage. Come over to chapter 17. And let's just look at one glance of what is covered in Psalm 95. The congregation gets thirsty Verse 2 of chapter 17, the people quarreled against Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with 
thirst. This is the event that is recounted. Now, go to Psalm 95, please. This is the event that's recounted in Psalm 95. Let's take just a moment and glance at it there. At the end of Psalm 95, starting in the second part of verse 7, is the exact quote that's given in Hebrews 2. So let's look at it in the context of Psalm 95. They're called to worship, to bow before Him. And He says in chapter, uh, excuse me, Psalm 95, verse 7, second part, Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah. Mirabah is the place we just mentioned in chapter 17. And it reflects back to the attitude in chapter 16 of the book of Exodus. As in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. What had they seen? They had seen the plagues, the ten signs. They had seen the Passover, the tent. They had seen the death angels swoop into town. And they heard the cries, household after household after household, as moms and dads began to wail the death of their firstborn child. They had seen. They had heard. They had smelled the bodies rotting. Here they were, having seen the sea parted, the cloud of, of, of fire by night and, and a cloud of a pillar of cloud by day that guided them. They'd seen all this. And yet here they are saying it would have been better to die under the judgment of God by a pot of meat than to live by faith. On God's provisions. And so in Psalm 95, he says, verse 10, For 40 years I loathed that generation. And I said, They are a people who err in their heart. They do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger that they shall not enter into my rest. God made an oath that they were not going to make it. Now, here's what happens. Come to Hebrews chapter 3. This quote and this backstory are in the minds of the reader because the readers because they grew up in Hebrew culture or were proselytes and came from from being a Gentile into Judaism and they knew the great stories of redemption because that's the first things they would be taught. And so here's a congregation they know this backstory they're familiar with it and so it's quoted here In chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Then the the neatest thing happens. Word by word, the writer to the Hebrews begins to pick a word and apply that word to the church. He takes it from Israel and he applies it to the church. Some who are the genuine church, the confessors, who are actually saved, and some to the false church who are professors of Christ but don't truly have a relationship. And so he begins to apply this to them word by word. Now, I don't have time to break it down, but here's what I would love for you to do. If you get an opportunity, maybe this evening after our evening service, because I hope you're going to be here and pack out the big house and hear this wonderful presentation from Henry and Deanna, Maybe this evening afterwards or maybe tomorrow you would reflect and you would take and follow how each of these words 
in verses 7 through 11 are lifted out and laid into verses 12 through 19 to make an application of an Old Testament text to a New Testament understanding, a New Testament congregation. And so that's exactly what the writer to the Hebrews does. He talks about today. He talks about hearts and hearing and provoking and day and testing and anger and wrath and rest and not entering. He takes all that and he breaks it down. So, here's my job because this is a big text and there's a lot in it. I just want to lift out three things. And I think if we can wrap our minds around these three things, we can begin to digest how serious this text actually is for us personally today. So, the first thing, and if you'll come to the outline, Peggy, is the first point on the outline, and that is the evidence of our profession. We say in Baptist life, A person makes a profession of faith. They profess to be a follower of Christ. They profess that they are a person who believes the gospel. This is a verbal statement of belief. And so the evidence of our profession is called into question in verse 6 and also in verse 14. By the use of the word, if. Look back at verse 6. But Christ was a faithful son over his house, whose house we are, if. Now remember last week, I used that illustration about saying a person was from Chalmette. And their accent, and I ran into them in Sam's, and they started speaking. And I said, I, I know that accent. And the guy said, Yeah, I'm from Chalmette. Now, the accent didn't make him from Chalmette. Because he was from Chalmette, he had the accent. In other words, if you start talking Chalmanese right now, you are not automatically inducted into being from Chalmette. You've got to be from Chalmette. Henry and Deanna are here today, and they spoke to us in Safaki. You can speak Safaki till you're blue in the face, and it's not going to make you a Satchua. They speak Safaki because they are Satchua. It is a byproduct of what they are. What is being said in verse 6 and verse 14 is that the perseverance of faith is the evidence, it's the accent, it's the language, it is the fruit of the fact that you are saved. Perseverance won't make you saved. Perseverance reveals that you are saved. Make sure the order is correct. Because you are saved, you persevere. Persevering won't get you saved. So, he says in verse 6, we are his house if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. That means your whole life, my whole life. Then come down to verse 14. Think with him. He says in verse 14, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So he's saying, 
Because we are Satchila, we speak Safiki. He's not saying, turn it around, we speak Safiki, so we become Satchila. He's not saying, you get saved by your perseverance. He's saying, you persevere because you're saved. It is the fruit of, it is the evidence of our profession being genuine. And this is important because persevering faith is that faith that endures in spite of difficulty and disappointment with God. Persevering faith is that which is revealed in its genuineness because it endures difficulty. So let's line up what's happening with the events back in the book of Exodus with the events in the book of Hebrews. These people have gotten saved. They've come to know the Lord. But as a result, they've been rejected by society, rejected by their families. They've become outcasts. They've lost property. They've lost jobs. They've lost inheritance. They've lost their IRA, their 401K. They've lost their Social Security. They've lost every avenue of support that they once had, of security that they once had, and now they don't have that. They're outcasts from the Jewish community. They no longer are inheritors of their father's lands, their grandfather's land. And so here they are now, a group of people who have to live by faith in what God is going to provide them every day as they eke out a hard living in the midst of rejection. And so they begin to think like the Israelites. You remember before we got saved, we had money. You remember before we professed Christ, we ate bread to the full. Remember before we were baptized, that we were accepted, and people said, yeah, man, come to our party, come to our house, be a part of our thing. You remember that? And they began to think a little bit like the Israelites. It was better to be lost with a full tummy on your way to hell than saved, eking out and barely surviving on your way to hell. That began to creep into their thinking. And so Paul had to talk to them about that. Excuse me, the writer of Hebrews, I don't think it's Paul. So used to preaching through Paul. The writer of Hebrews had had to approach them about that. And so here they are. They're suffering. So the first thing that he does is he says, the legitimacy of your faith is demonstrated by its perseverance through suffering. Now, let me make sure something's clear. He's not talking about losing your salvation. One of the ways that I've learned to understand the book of Hebrews and its talk about the word apostasy, turning away from God, is this way. There is a difference between a person who is engaged, who says, I will, and a person who is married, who has said, I do. I will is a promise yet to be consummated, I do is a done deal. Some of the people that are being written to are like some of the people that we run into either in church or in society who claim to be Christians. Jesus, in a sense, proposed to them and they said, well, one day I will. I'll kind of attend church and I'll go through the motions and I'll 
I'll look like I am. But the truth is, I've got a couple of other boyfriends on the side. And so, Jesus, I'm going to kind of keep those boyfriends and date you by going to church. Date you by reading my Bible. Date you by looking religious and claiming a Christian. But the truth is, I'm not committed to you alone. I have some on the side. That's why in Israel, it was always called spiritual adultery when the people of God worshipped idols. And so here, these people that are being warned are a group of people within the true church of professors who have said, I will, but have not yet said, I do. And so, persevering faith is the legitimate mark and evidence of our profession. So let's move into the next part of the text. We saw that persevering faith listed out in verse 6 and in verse 14. Now I want to take up a different topic, number two. Help me out there, Peggy. The encouragement for our perseverance. Thank you so much for your work. You're just a blessing to us. All our sound and video folks, Larry Hare up there and others, man, we're blessed. Y'all know that? There's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that goes on all the time. We don't even notice it. I thank God for our workers who help us every day. The encouragement for our perseverance. Now, let me tell you how this bubbled up real quick. A couple Wednesday nights ago, I was beginning to tell the illustration that I showed you last Sunday of, of having these two concepts about Jesus, who He is. He is God in flesh, perfect, holy, righteous, creator, designer, sustainer, upholder of all things. And I said He's also the sacrifice for our sins, the Savior, the Redeemer. He's God's Savior and King. And I talked about lining those two things up and you're kind of like in a ship and you line those two things up and that keeps you in the channel that is safe and will not shipwreck you and will bring you safely home into the harbor of eternity. I talked about that and I was sharing and beginning to illustrate that Brian, who is a new believer who was with us on Wednesday night, said, hey, wait a minute. He said, and he says something so profound, he said, don't we need some people to help us stay on track? Now, it was for me a duh moment. Not about him. It was about me because I totally overlooked. One of the most powerful statements that the writer to the Hebrews makes in this text is found now. Come to verses 12 and 13. And I want you to focus in on this, and then I want to try to illustrate it. Take care, brethren, or see to it, brethren, or look here, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you, the professors, an evil heart, unbelieving God in falling away from the living God. He's saying to the folks who are professors, you better look out. You're here right now and you have the appearance of being one with Jesus, but the truth is you've just been dating Him. You're just kind of sort of promise-ringed. You're just kind of sort of engaged. You've said something like, I will. But you have not said, I do. Because you have some lovers on the side that you won't give up. And so he says, 
verse 13. But encourage one another. This was what Brian was talking about. It was like one of those moments where Brian's light bulb's been on for weeks and my lights, like my lights are on, but nobody's home. And so being, I said, whoa, this is one of the chief points of the text is this concept called one anothering. The impact and influence that you and I have on each other. Read with me. But encouraging one another. The word encourage there is the word that we get the definition and description of the Holy Spirit from in the book of John. Parakleo, one who is called alongside. Here he is saying that you guys, we guys, we are called alongside each other for a purpose. Let me explain. And Brian, I'm so thankful for you because you just kicked this into my mind so powerfully. You see, the thing that was happening in the book of Exodus in chapter 16 and 17 was called grumbling. It was called embittering. It was called complaining. The people were discouraging each other from believing by pointing out all of the lacking things rather than pointing to the great thing of their salvation. They sat around and whined about the water when they had been saved by their God. And so, here they are. Now, here's what I realized. Because we are all sinners, even after salvation, sin lurks within every one of us. And its evilness is to do this. Look at what verse 12 says. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And then it says in verse 13, But encourage one another as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here's what's happening. Inside you, believer or unbeliever, sin dwells. And it is a hungry, hungry monster. And what it wants to do is eat bitterness and digest it into our souls and discourage us. It lurks in us all. It's lurking now. It's hunting. It's calling. It's like in the Lord of the Rings, the ring that Frodo was carrying was always calling out for its master. The master of sin is Satan. And the sin that is within us is always seeking to feed on anything that will allow the sin to be the hardening agent of our hearts. This is very serious. It is why we are drawn to negative things. It is why the supermarket aisles are filled with garbage because the fallen heart wants it. It is not the good news section that we stand and gawk at in line. It is three-headed alien Mary's Elvis clone. <gasps> really? Did you see that? He's really still alive. We are still 
living in fallen bodies occupied by fallen minds. And the danger is that that sin lurking wants to feed on discouragement for the purpose of hardening our hearts against God. Through discouragement, we become participants in what Satan is doing. Remember how Jason shared with you a few weeks ago how Satan in the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, is roaming about like a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. Do you remember who Jason said he's after? He's after the weak and the sick and the lame. The discouraged. And the power of discouragement is beyond our description. And I'm going to tell you a story about me I've not ever even told my wife. Shortly after my dad died, I was 17 when he died. I was invited to participate in the Christmas musical of the church I was attending. And I was invited to play guitar for the Christmas musical. I was not a great guitarist, but I could play. And so I accepted the invitation to play. I got the music. I worked for a while. I didn't read music very well, but I worked for a while. and Bought a new guitar, new amp, and a little pedal that went with it. And came to the first practice, and as the choir was playing, I... uh, I played along with them. And there was a guy in our church who was a pretty good musician. And uh, he sat near me while that practice was going on and I was playing my guitar. And he kind of looked at me and shook his head and basically said, that ain't going to cut it. Now, there were a couple of things at work. First, you have to realize my father had died And I was bouncing around like a pinball. I was aimless. I I, I had no bearings. I was, was a Christian. But I was just out there. And so I came and I practiced and that guy just looked at me and said, basically, that ain't going to cut it. So I went home and and I stewed over that all week. That was a Sunday afternoon rehearsal. Time came around, went to Sunday morning church, and Sunday afternoon I knew I was going to have to go back to rehearsal. I was so discouraged that I went and got a razor and I slipped my fingers so I wouldn't have to go back and play again. I took a carpet knife and I just laid them on my finger and I just jerked it. Because it was easier for me to slip my fingers open than to face the discouragement of that man looking at me and saying, you're not going to cut it. And I walked away from church. Now a lot of you think you're just an idiot. And that's the truth. That's the point. That's the point! That's what we all are. 
We are broken sinners with incredible mess-ups, with understandings that are warped and twisted and dark. That's why Jesus died. He didn't come to fix up some really well-groomed folks. He came for people under the wrath of God who were broken and warped. But for me, it was easier to cut my fingers so that I could not play guitar than to be discouraged. You see, there was something really deeper that this guy knew but paid no attention to. With my father's death, I was wandering aimless and I needed an anchor of encouragement somewhere. And the church was the place I was trying to find it. I was a believer. The power of discouragement, my brothers and sisters, is immense. I wonder how many people are out of church because of our offhanded comments that came without concern for where they really are in their lives. The broken hearts, the neediness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, if somebody asks a Christian, where is your salvation, your righteousness? He can never point to himself. He points to the Word of God. In Jesus Christ. Which assures him of salvation and righteousness. He is as alert as possible to this word. Because he daily hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He daily desires the redeeming word. But God has put this word into the mouth of men. In order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of a man. Therefore, as the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him, he needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. Brian was right. The only way we can keep this thing on course is by helping each other pilot each other's ship in genuine Christian love. Not standing on the bank and screaming to people that they're off course. But getting in the wheelhouse of their life, where it's dirty with their failures, where it's ugly with their mess-ups, and becoming intimate enough with them to know what really drives them off course in the first place. This is true Christianity. It's brothers and sisters who love in spite of what we find in each other's wheelhouse. Bonhoeffer goes on to say, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. 
Many of us have a great circle of friends that encourage us, but how many are here today in the depths of loneliness? How many aren't here today in the depths of loneliness? And we ignore that they're off course because we're too busy criticizing the direction of their ship. Rather than climbing in the wheelhouse of their life and loving them back on course. There was a little girl who was who lost her mom. It's a true story. And she was grieving. She was an adolescent, maybe nine or ten, eight. She was really laboring. And in the night, she called out to her dad. Daddy! Daddy! Of course, he got up dealing with his own grief and he ran to her and he, he picked her up and he held her. and He began to comfort her and he began to speak to her and he said, Honey, you know that God loves you. And, and mommy is with him. You know of God's love. You know that Jesus loves you. He has died for you and been raised from the dead to pay for your sins. You know the Holy Spirit abides in you, helping you, encouraging you. And she sweetly looked up at her dad and said, Yes, Daddy, but right now I just need somebody with skin on them. Isn't it possible that that's where a lot of us are? We can wade through our theology and we can talk about the Spirit and talk about the Christ and talk about the Father. But the truth is, there are times we just need people with some skin on them to hold us and encourage us and climb into the wheelhouse with us and to help us get back on course because we hurt. And that's what the book of Hebrews is saying. These people are suffering. And brothers and sisters, the easiest thing to do is to grumble. But it takes faith and encouragement to climb into each other's wheelhouse and to love each other in the midst of our sin. Stupid people who will cut their fingers to get out of the possibility of being known as a failure. Those are the people. People like me. People like you. And so, God tells us that the tongue is a fire. A world of evil. Here, encourage one another as long as it is called today. Lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The hungry, deadly, sinful self is lurking in each of us and it will eat and be nourished by discouragement. We can choke that thing to death with the loving encouragement of gospel-centered love in Jesus Christ. And that's our responsibility. I need to close because some of this may have made some of you a little shaky about, well, then how am I going to know that I'm going to get there? That's number three, the assurance of entry into our possession. And I'm going to close with just two passages of Scripture and three questions. 
The two passages of Scripture are found in Hebrews 6.17. I love 6.17. It's nourishing me right now in my life in new ways. 6.17, go there, place your finger on it, rejoice in it. What does he say? In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of promise, the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath. So here's a God who promises that people who are not faith in Jesus Christ, people are not headed to heaven. Here's a different promise. He interposes it with an oath. He swears here about those. What does He say in verse 17? In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath, verse 18, in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. What is He saying? God has sworn that if you believe in who Christ is and what He has done, He will bring you home. That's God's job. And He has sworn it. And just as He'll keep His word about those who will not believe, He will keep His word for those who do believe. This is good! (laughs) This is great for shaky people like me, for sketchy, squirrely men like Bart Walker. This is good. And Hebrews 13.30 caps it off. It's the icing on the cake. It's the closing of the book. I know it's not time to close the book, but you need to know this. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Look at the power of this verse. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. What is He saying here? That the God who raised the great shepherd by the power of the resurrection is going to bring you home by the same power. He will not fail. Now, what's our job? Number one question, where's my evidence? Am I enduring in faith? I need to ask that question. I need to keep it in front of me. Number two, where's my encouragement? What do I do when I'm in a room and just a few of us are talking? What do I do? Do I load up with encouragement? I have people who criticize me. They say, Bart, you're just, you're just like an eternal optimist. Sometimes it's just almost not real how, how encouraged you are. Here's the deal. I read the last chapter of the Bible. And I want to tell you, there's nothing that can change how it's going to work out. And therefore, my confidence has nothing to do with how good I am or how good you are. It has everything to do with how good Jesus was. And it is all in His hand. And I read the last chapter. Listen, He wins. It is not like the LSU game last night. Where at the last minute, the bad guy pulls it off. Sorry, you Alabama guys. Love y'all, kind of. And, and, and Satan kind of whoops up and kind of gets... No, uh-uh. It's not like that. Jesus wins. And so, where's my encouragement? Do I talk about the winning of Jesus? Or do do I just discourage? 
How many people were affected by my voice the way that I was affected by that man's voice? How many people have I driven home to slice their fingers so they wouldn't have to see me again? Our words are important. Use them wisely. Encourage and edify your brothers. 